I, uh, I have a question because normally when I give this talk, I use um, some of the material that you that those of you who came to chapel heard this morning. Um, I have an alternate talk that I can give that doesn't have any of the chapel uh, material. So I was wondering um, just how many of you were not at chapel, if you could raise your hand. Um, okay, almost all of you were not at chapel. Okay, this is good. So I just ask for those of you who were at, at chapel to just, you know, please hang on because only the first 10 minutes uh, or 15 minutes is familiar and the rest will will all be uh, new to you. Well, it is a joy to be here with you on this beautiful day to speak about how Jesus' sacred heart healed my memories. Uh, and uh, as you uh, heard in the introduction, uh, I'm a convert to Catholicism. And when I entered the church, one of the things that I was hoping to find, really the main thing, was healing in Christ. I needed a lot of healing because when I was a child, I endured various kinds of trauma, including the divorce of my parents, sexual molestation, and an abusive home environment. Uh, as a result of these wounds, I suffer post-traumatic stress disorder. So I'm speaking to you as one who knows what it's like to fear certain things that bring unwanted reminders of the past. I know what it's like to endure flashbacks. I know what it's like to have anxiety and sadness and to carry unresolved feelings of anger and shame. I also know what it's like to feel misplaced shame, the feeling that the evil I suffered at the hands of another was somehow my fault. Now, I'm not going to tell you that today as a Catholic, I no longer suffer those unwanted feelings or sensations. I can't tell you that because PTSD isn't just a mental state. With PTSD, the stress of the past becomes embodied. So it can't be simply wished away by thinking happy thoughts. It also can't be prayed away, although, as I'll share, I've found that prayer is central to coping with it. What I am going to tell you is that during the time since I became a Catholic, and especially since I began to study the lives of the saints, I have witnessed a real difference in the way I experience the effects of past pain. PTSD may still cause me discomfort, but it doesn't own me. It can rankle me because I'm human, but it can't really harm me. Uh, and uh, so the past is not my enemy anymore. I'm no longer a prisoner of fear, anger, or shame. And the reason why is because I've learned that every time I feel the pain of any kind of wound, our Lord Jesus Christ is with me in a profound way. Uh, he's with me already through the graces I received in baptism, but he's with me on an even deeper and more intimate level if I consciously ask him to be with me when I suffer. The church calls this a mystery. It's a mystery because even though we know it's true, we'll never get to the bottom of it. And this mysterious truth is that when I unite 
my own wounded heart with the wounded and glorified heart of Jesus, his wounds heal mine. So I'd like to speak with you today about how Jesus heals our painful memories. Uh, this is a topic that I've explored in depth in my book, My Peace I Give You, Healing Sexual Wounds with the Help of the Saints, uh, which, will, which I'll be signing outside uh, afterwards, uh, along with my other book, The Thrill of the Chaste. Mm -hmm. So some of this book, some of this talk is taken from My Peace I Give You, uh, but some of it is also taken from my next book, which is coming out in March and called Remembering God's Mercy. So uh, the rest of this talk has three parts. Uh, full, first, we'll take a look at what the Bible has to say about healing of memories. Second, we'll consider the Sacred Heart of Jesus, a devotion that gives us a window into the depth of God's love for us. And last, I'll share about how Mary helps us to understand our past in light of the risen Christ. So let's start with the, uh, the Bible, and this is the part that I shared today uh, in chapel. Last spring, I was invited to speak on healing of memories at a church on a Native American reservation. Now, if you know anything about reservations, you know that they tend to have a lot of suffering, including high rates of poverty, addiction, and abuse. I had just finished my talk when a middle-aged woman in the front row raised her hand to ask a question. She was clearly hurting, her brow was furrowed, and her speech was halting. As she struggled to get her words out, I admired her courage in publicly revealing her pain. She asked, is there anything in the Bible? And I thought, I'm on good, safe ground here. It's a Bible question. I know my Bible. Uh, but then she finished her question, and she asked, is there anything in the Bible about people who recover their memory? about people who block out their memories of trauma and then get their memories back. Whoa, I had to pause and reflect because no one had ever asked me that question. And you know, the first thing I thought was there couldn't be anything in the Bible about people who block out their trauma and then get their memories back because the whole understanding that we have of this is a modern uh, understanding uh, from the 1980s when psychologists first began to uh, talk really about uh, PTSD. But then I realized, hold on, um, the woman's question actually touched upon an important theme in the New Testament, and it was a theme that I had read in one of Pope Francis's homilies. Uh, so with that in mind, I answered there are many incidents in the Bible where a person blocks out a traumatic memory and only recalls it later. We see it all through the Gospels. Think of all the times when Jesus, as he heads toward Jerusalem, tells his disciples that the Son of Man must suffer and be rejected and scourged and spit upon and killed and rise again on the third day. It was traumatic for the disciples to hear that. First of all, they didn't have a concept of a suffering Messiah. 
They were expecting a warrior messiah, one who would take back Israel from the Roman occupation. So the idea of a suffering messiah scandalized them. What's more, the disciples loved Jesus more than they loved anyone. Hearing him predict his own death was as though they were hearing their own father tell them that he would be beaten, humiliated, and killed. It was too much for them to handle. So what did they do? They blocked it out. And so when Jesus' predictions of his passion came true, the disciples were blindsided. They had never expected that their leader would be taken away from them, so they scattered. And with that, we see the real problem that happens when people block out memories of past trauma. Because practically every time Jesus predicted his passion, uh, he would also say that after three days, he would rise. But because the disciples blocked out their memories of Jesus' predictions of his passion, they also blocked out their memories of, uh, of Jesus' prediction of his resurrection. So when he was crucified, their hope was gone. But what happens after Jesus rises? Pope Francis points out in one of his homilies that when Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to the tomb ex expecting to find Jesus and instead found it empty, the angel said to them, remember what he told you when he was with you in Galilee. And they remembered his words. The first thing that Jesus does when he rises from the dead is he restores our memory. Jesus' encounter with the disciples on the road to Emmaus demonstrates this beautifully. The, dis the two disciples don't recognize him as he approaches them. They're speaking to one another about what happened in Jerusalem, J Jesus' crucifixion. When Jesus asks what they are discussing, their faces become downcast. They look at the ground. Isn't that like what we do when we're traumatized? We don't want other people to see our pain. The disciples tell Jesus about the events of the Passion, but they speak as though they had no hope. Um, and uh, they uh, blocked out their predi his predictions of his death because they couldn't imagine a suffering Messiah. You see this in their saying, but we were hoping that he would be the one to redeem Israel. Now Jesus could respond by immediately revealing his identity, but he doesn't. Instead, before showing them who he really is, he first heals their memories. He uses the words of the prophets to remind them of what he himself had said during his earthly life, that the Messiah would enter into his glory through suffering. Now, after I had said all this in my talk on the reservation, I thanked the woman for her question, and she seemed to take comfort in my response. But only afterward did I realize that she had helped me more than I had helped her because she inspired me to go back and reread the homily by Pope Francis about the empty tomb. And what I found in Francis's, in Francis's words about how Jesus healed his, memory, his followers' memories, it helped me to contemplate more deeply how he heals my own memories. 
The homily I had in mind was one where Francis comments on Luke chapter 24. Francis points out that when the women first see the empty tomb and the angels in it with no sign of Jesus' body, they're terrified. It's then that the angels say, remember what he told you when he was with you in Galilee. Francis says they're asked to remember their encounter with Jesus, to remember his words, his actions, his life. And it's precisely this loving remembrance of their experience with the Master that enables the women to master their fear and to bring the message of the resurrection to the apostles and all the others. This is profound before the women can fully appreciate and share the good news of the resurrection, they first need to see their own personal past within the light of the Easter sunrise. They do this by remembering their encounter with Jesus. The women's personal memories of Jesus included traumatic events. They had not only heard Jesus predict his passion, they were there when his prediction was fulfilled. But in their distress over his sufferings and death, they had forgotten his promise that after three days he would rise. The angel's reminder leads them to lift the mental block they had placed upon their, his, uh, upon their painful past so that they could see how Jesus had always loved them, always wanted them to hope in him, and now, having risen, he would always be with them. My own healing of memories began several years ago when, as a new Catholic, I started to reflect upon how Jesus had always loved me. One particular devotion that helped me appreciate Jesus' love was that of the Sacred Heart. Now, uh, as you heard, I'm a, I'm a convert from Judaism, and I have to say that before my conversion, I found devotion to the Sacred Heart to be one of the odder aspects of the Catholic faith. Even if Jesus was God, why should one of his organs be set apart for veneration? <laughs> it wasn't until I studied the Catechism that it began to make sense. In everyday conversation, the heart is more than just any body part. It represents the center of our being, the source of our will, the axis of our love. The Catechism notes that while God's love is infinite, Christ's body was finite. The Sacred Heart, then, provides us with a human gateway to the mystery of divine love, enabling us to begin to conceive what's ultimately beyond our imagination. Now, although the Catechism showed me that veneration of the Sacred Heart was reasonable, what really won me over to the devotion was a visual catechism. I discovered that one day while exploring the campus of Georgetown University in Washington, D.C. It was in the form of a trio of stunning stained glass windows on the north wall of the Dahlgren Chapel of the Sacred Heart, which you can see uh, in, in this photograph. The left-handed window of the Sacred Heart-themed triptych 
shows Jesus instituting the Eucharist at the Last Supper. I can see him there looking directly at me face to face. His left hand is holding the bread against his heart and his right hand is raised in blessing. St. John is seated close at his side, leaning on the inside of Jesus' left shoulder, so close as to hear the beating of the Sacred Heart. John's eyes are fixed on the Eucharist. No other disciples are visible in the narrow window, but I can see the back of an empty chair on the side of the table that faces Jesus. You can see it right here. And it's apparently the chair that Judas left uh, when he hurried out to betray the Lord. Jesus seems to be inviting me to put myself in that empty chair so that I may receive the Eucharist from his own hands and give his sacred heart my, my love to make up for the hatred of the betrayer. Seeing St. John at Jesus' side, I imagine I am witnessing the moment in John's Gospel when the Lord urged us to make the love of his heart our own. I give you a new commandment, love one another, as I have loved you, so you also should love one another. And in that love, he offers the greatest gift of all. Peace I leave you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give it to you. Do not let your hearts be troubled or afraid. After contemplating the first window, my eyes move to the one in the center, Jesus on the cross. The centurion does not appear in the scene, but he has left his mark, a spear wound in Jesus' side. A few red trickles remain at the spot where blood and water flowed a moment ago from the Savior's pierced heart. Mary stands at the left side of the cross, her face downcast, with an expression of mourning so deep as to be beyond emotion, judging by the dark circles around her eyes. It seems as though she has suffered with Jesus through his entire passion, even somehow in his agony the night before. John is at the right side of the cross, leaning forward to Mary, arms open as though to enfold her in a protective embrace. He is following the last commandment of Jesus' earthly life. The words spoken by the Savior just a few moments ago seem to hang in the air, behold your mother. It is as though Jesus is ensuring that his peace, one, the peace of the sacred heart once given, doesn't leave us for one moment, even as he departs for three days to return in the resurrection, he remains with the human community through his mystical body, the church, whose mother and preeminent member is Mary. Finally, I turn my gaze to the last window of the triptych, and there I find an image that must come as a surprise to some people as it depicts a scene not in the Bible. Here, as with the crucifixion, Mary is on the left and the Apostle John is on the right with Jesus in the midst of them. Mary looks to be several years older 
than she was at the crucifixion, but still beautiful. Uh, th this time she's not standing, but kneeling in a position reminiscent of the way artists depict her fiat, her yes to the angel Gabriel. Her face is tilted upward and her hands are clasped with fingertips pointing toward heaven. John stands on a step above Mary, facing her. As in the other two windows, Jesus is in the center, but this time he's in the form of the Eucharist, held in John's right hand. As you can see, the Apostle John is giving Holy Communion to the Mother of God. Now, some of you may have read uh, the part of my piece I give you where I describe these windows, but there's something beautiful about this last window that I didn't notice at the time I wrote that book. I only uh, discovered it later. Do you see that behind John's head, uh, where there's a kind of window within the stained glass window, uh, there's something that looks like a drapery. That, that uh, image of that drapery is actually supposed to represent the veil that Veronica used to wipe the face of Jesus, and it bears a faint image of Jesus' face. So what we're really being invited to contemplate with this image is how after Jesus ascended into heaven, Mary received her son under the veil of the Eucharist, and she looked forward to the day when she would again see him face to face. With that image, the Dahlgren Chapel window's visual catechism of the Sacred Heart comes to a profound conclusion. Let's take a moment to review. I promise you there won't be any quiz. Um, window one, Jesus gives us his Sacred Heart through the Eucharist at the Last Supper as a permanent memorial of his approaching passion. Window two, the Sacred Heart triumphs on the cross as Jesus gives his physical body for the life of the world, and it triumphs in our own hearts as Jesus calls Mary to become mother of his mystical body, the church. Window three, through Holy Communion, the Sacred Heart in the Eucharist, the same one poured out for us on the cross, and the heart of the church represented by Mary those two hearts are joined in, in an exchange of love. I, 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 those two hearts really are, are one heart seen, seen um, in, in two different ways because the body of Christ is the Eucharist and, and now uh, since Jesus' uh, ascension, he, our head, is in heaven and we uh, are his body on earth. And so I remain haunted by the beauty of that last window. It conveys Mary's experience in a way that is, for me, deeply cathartic. Here's a woman who, during her son's passion, endured the most intense emotional trauma any human being could undergo and survive. The fact that at a time when all but one of the disciples had fled, she was able to remain standing by the cross, pouring out her heart for her son as he poured out his own heart for the world. That in itself is something 
of a miracle that she could stay standing. That last window shows us Mary at a time when her memory held not only the pain of the crucifixion, but also the joy of the resurrection. But it also shows us something more. It shows us Mary in the present moment, living in the tension between earth and heaven. That pilgrim experience is part of every Christian's life. We know Jesus is present with us, but we must rely on faith as the evidence of things not seen. Yet how much greater must that tension have been for Mary, the first human being ever to see Jesus' face, when it came to pass that she could see him only under the veil of the Eucharist. I see all those memories, the pain and the joy, as well as the tension of the present moment in the expression of longing on Mary's face as she receives her son in Holy Communion. Instead of letting herself be defined by the three hours when the sun went black, she is defined by the Easter morning when the light of the resurrected Christ, who is the light from light, dawned upon the world, never to depart. She knows, as our Lord told the disciples on the way to Emmaus, that it was indeed necessary that the Messiah should suffer these things and enter into his glory. The resurrection then doesn't wipe out Mary's memory of the passion. Rather, it completes her experience, enabling her to properly integrate the trauma into her identity. Her past pain becomes an integral part of her present joy. I'd like to close with a story of the moment when I first came to understand how my own past pain could be integrated with my present joy. Uh, I entered the Catholic Church nine years ago at a time when I was just beginning to come to terms with the traumas in my past. As a Catholic, I understood that whatever pain I had in the moment could become part of my daily offering to God as I endured it in union with Jesus' passion. But I remained in a kind of mourning over the suffering I had endured before becoming reborn in Christ. I thought that these past sufferings were wasted pain. On the one hand, I knew that our Catholic faith teaches that God never positively wills evil. Rather, he permits evil uh, because he respects our freedom. What's more, in the mystery of God's providence, he's able to derive good from evil. As I say, I knew this, yet in the depth of my heart, I was carrying resentment against God for having allowed me to be traumatized. So it was one day in August 2010 that I found myself in a retreat house in Ann Arbor, Michigan, uh, with an unspoken prayer. Uh, I was in the midst of an eight-day uh, retreat, uh, my first time praying the spiritual exercises of St. Ignatius Loyola. Uh, my retreat director had assigned me to meditate that afternoon on uh, the uh, reflections St. Ignatius made on Jesus' passion. Uh, 
So I went to the house's small chapel and began to pray before the tabernacle. My childhood pain was in the background of my thoughts, as it always was, but I was trying to think about Jesus rather than uh, myself. That's when it happened. As I prayed, I saw with my mind's eye the Eucharist as though it were at the center of an image like uh, a bicycle wheel, but all made of light. And the wheel's spokes reached out to all the earth, taking up everyone and everything uh, in its embrace and bringing everyone and everything back to the center, back to the Eucharist. And at that moment, I realized that whereas God could not change my past, he had done something infinitely better. He had changed me by making me his beloved daughter in Christ. After all, what is the past? It really happened, but it's, it no longer exists, except in as much as it's part of what makes us who we are today. Contemplating the light of Jesus, the Son of Righteousness, I understood that when I am really present for Christ, as he is really present for me in the Eucharist, then his healing rays enter into every dark crevice of my heart. It's as though Jesus' precious blood bleeds back into my past, making even my most painful times part of a beautiful story. The story is beautiful not because the evil was good, because evil can never be good, but it's beautiful because it ends with me belonging to him, belonging to Jesus. And so it was that our Lord in healing my memory opened my eyes so that I could better share in his resurrected life. As when after he healed the disciples' memories on the road to Emmaus, they recognized him in the breaking of the bread, so too the more I allow Jesus to restructure my understanding, the more I come to recognize him when I meet him in the Eucharist. It's the grace of memory that enables this recognition, a memory purified in the fire of Jesus' love. I hope and pray that these reflections help you to discover the beautiful story that Jesus is writing in the events of your own life. Thank you so much and God bless you and I'll be delighted to answer any questions you might have and afterwards sign your books. Thank you. So if you have any questions, if you could please just uh, raise your hand. Don't all talk at once. Um, okay, I see two. Um, you first, sir, and, and then and then you, you.
just wondering if you might want to comment on since that time of the retreat, how you know your participation in the Eucharist, receiving the Lord in the Eucharist, how that continues to bring healing into your life. Uh, so the question is, since the time of the retreat, how my participation in the Eucharist uh, continued to bring healing uh, into my life. Uh, well, um, at the time of the retreat, I was just going to Mass on Sundays and feast days, and uh, occasionally during the week. But I always thought that being a graduate student, I was just too busy uh, with school for anyone to expect me uh, to come to daily Mass. And truth be told, you know, no one was expecting me to come to daily Mass. There was one very pious uh, fellow student at my school who nudged me to make the time, but but you know it's not like people were pounding on my door telling me that I was some kind of you know heretic for only going to mass on Sunday. I mean, you know. So, but um, but I, I I really did kind of envy people who went to daily mass. If I wanted someone to pray for me, I would ask someone who went to daily mass because I felt like they were they were seeing Jesus more often uh, than I was. They were spending more time with him uh, than, than I than I was, um, and so I remember at one point um, when I was seeing a spiritual director, and in uh, in my piece I, I give you, I um, at the end I have I have a, a, a reader's guide on on finding help, and I recommend that readers both get psychological help and that they get spiritual help, uh, and you know I've I've certainly uh, d done both myself and. My spiritual director, um, I guess maybe a year or two after um, that uh, retreat, uh, recommended that I um, that I start going to daily mass. But the way he recommended it, he didn't say that I should start going to daily mass and make it my habit forever. Uh, he suggested that I make a novena of masses, uh, a novena a as. Uh, as uh, some of you uh, no, no doubt know, is um, when you make a prayer nine, you know, consecu uh, nine consecutive days uh, with the idea that if you're really focusing your attention on this petition, that you're you know, sending a message to God, I'm really serious about this, I really need this. It's kind of like you know, the parable about the, the widow and the unjust judge, except that God you know, is the just judge and that um, he just wants us to keep, to keep beating down uh, his door. Um, so uh, the idea of making a novena of masses appealed to me because I could just make nine daily masses and have done with it and be back to my busy grad student life. But I found after going to a novena of nine masses that I, I was hooked. There was uh, no going back. And uh, so uh, in my own healing, uh, I've found that uh, that one thing that the mass, daily mass is great for is what people in the secular world call mindfulness. You hear a lot of talk about mindfulness. You know, uh, when I go to the doctor for my, uh, for my uh, annual uh, checkup and I tell him that I suffer from PTSD, um, well, this was with a different doctor. My own doctor now knows that I'm uh, Catholic, but with a previous doctor, the doctor said, well, uh, you know, one of the things that you can do is uh, maybe do some meditation, some yoga, and I just, you know, said thank you, but I thought how can I even explain to my doctor that what people get out of meditation 
what people get out of yoga, with the exception of, of the exercise, except for some kneeling and getting up, uh, you know, I get, I get the best of that from, uh, from daily mass with something much more because, uh, because I am reminded through the presence of the Eucharist, uh, physical presence, I'm reminded that Jesus is also united with me through my baptism. So seeing that reminder, it, it lets me um, better incorporate his presence in the Eucharist into my own life and better, real, uh, and better um, be Eucharist, pour myself out uh, in, a, in a gift, or as, as, as a gift uh, to, uh, to uh, others. So uh, great question, thank you.